And welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Usry, and I'm happy to welcome Jonathan Eig to the program today. Jonathan is a best-selling and award-winning author of nonfiction. His titles are Luckiest Man, The Life and Death of Lou Gehrig, Opening Day, The Story of Jackie Robinson's First Season, Git Capone, The Secret Plot That Captured America's Most Wanted Gangster, The Birth of the Pill, How Four Crusaders Reinvented Sex and Launched a Revolution, and the multi-award winning Ali, A Life, about boxer and activist Muhammad Ali. Today, we'll begin the first of a two-part interview about his new exhaustive biography of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., entitled King, A Life, which is published by Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. So, Jonathan, I read it was actually your previous book on Ali that gave you the inspiration for this new book about Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. That's right. Uh, When I was working on the Ali book, I found myself interviewing a lot of people who knew Martin Luther King as well as Muhammad Ali, and I just began out of curiosity asking them to tell me about Martin Luther King. And I I realized what an opportunity to talk to people who knew this man, because we tend to treat him like ancient history. And in fact, at that point, when I began this book, he would have only been in his late 80s, you know, so he could have easily still been around. I just decided that I was going to try to interview as many of them as I could find people who knew him. And that's when it occurred to me that, you know, it had been a long time since the last King biography, and that maybe I could use my time to not just conduct these interviews, but begin work on a new King biography that his life really needed another accounting, that it had been too long. Now, there have been many books that have focused in on like periods of the civil rights struggle and King's involvement in it. Why do you think it had been so long since a life-spanning biography had been published? That's a great question. You know, these terrific books by David Garrow and Taylor Branch were really... um, enormously well done and very comprehensive, but neither of them was a straightforward biography. Taylor Branch is really about King and America during that era. And and David Garrow's book is about the SCLC and the organizations that led the civil rights movement with a lot of King in it. But a straightforward biography is a different animal. You know, it's a much more intimate portrait. It's something that makes you feel like you're walking alongside your subject and that you're just seeing the world from his or her eyes. And and a King biography hadn't been done in a long time. And in, in that time, in that 40 years or so since the last King biography, we'd really seen society turn him into a, a two-dimensional figure that we've seen him rendered in this sort of a safe way that we celebrate, I have a dream, but we forget some of the more radical things he said. So I thought it was really important to try to write a book that, again, made him feel more like a more intimate figure, somebody you could understand how they were feeling, what they were going through personally, but also gave him some of his teeth back because we rendered him kind of, as I said, this watered down figure. Do you think it's a tendency for all humans to do this, or is it a particularly American thing to kind of try to sand off the rough edges of the notable people in our history? Yeah, I think we do it with everybody. We do it with our own family members, right? When we tell the stories about grandpa, grandma, you remember the uh, the fun stuff. You remember how nice they were, but you forget some of the rough spots they went through. And that's just part of human nature. And, and I think also with our heroes in particular, we have a tendency to try to turn them into saintly figures and forget that they were complicated, that they made mistakes, that they had doubts. But in the end, I think we do them a disservice with that approach that our heroes are are more inspiring when we acknowledge their humanity, that they did not just go from point A to point B without bumps in the road, that they had doubts, that they had flaws. Uh, I think that, you know, we can relate to them better that way. So when you're looking at flaws of a person who is portrayed as this flawless person in our popular culture and discourse, 
how do you balance the desire to show these flaws, but then not kind of tip over into a type of character assassination as opposed to a literal one in our case? Well, in the case of King and Muhammad Ali, and, you know, I, I don't think I'd want to write a book about somebody who I disdained or who I did not have respect for and, and who I was, you know, looking to take down. The last thing I wanted to do was attempt to smear Martin Luther King's image because I consider him the greatest American of all time and certainly my favorite figure of the 20th century. So I wanted to put those flaws in just so that you knew I was being straight with you, so that you knew you could trust me as a storyteller that I'm not ignoring his weaknesses. I'm not ignoring his plagiarism, for example, or his marital infidelity, so that you'll know that you can trust me when I tell you about his inspiring acts and his great courage. And at the same time, especially when it came to King's marital infidelity, it's important to acknowledge that because it became a weapon that the FBI used to try to destroy him. So it's relevant to his life in many ways. So it was interesting to see that Lyndon Baines Johnson kind of started to separate himself from King when he was getting these reports of King's infidelities from J. Edgar Hoover. And LBJ was notorious for being a womanizer and bragging about it quite a bit in the, in the tapes that we, we heard several years ago that came out. Was it just the concern over the potential of scandal and being linked to that scandal that led him to this distancing? Oh, I don't think so. I don't think so at all. I think that you know, LBJ knew that lots of people in his inner circles were less than pure and, and cheating on their wives, and that didn't stop him from doing business with them. I think what really drove the wedge between LBJ and MLK was King's stance on the Vietnam War. And by that time, LBJ had reason to question King's morality. You know, he was gossiping about King's sex life with J. Edgar Hoover. But I think LBJ would have more than tolerated that if King hadn't begun criticizing the war in Vietnam. And LBJ was haunted by that war and, and tormented by it and felt like it was undermining you know, much of his work, his reputation and costing him sleep. And to see King come out and attack Johnson and, and criticize the war was deeply wounding to LBJ. And, and he took it personally. And, and I used it as an excuse, I think, to um, further distance himself from MLK at a time when they really should have been and were great allies in many ways. They, they worked together to pass the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. They worked together in their attempts to address issues of poverty. Nevertheless, Johnson you know, really had a falling out over the, over the Vietnam War. It's interesting that we see two different aspects of Christianity between Hoover and King. And Hoover is this traditional rectitude and the view of kind of like a punitive version of Christianity and King and famously his support of agape and love for, for every human being. Yeah. You know, one of the beautiful things about King is that he, and, and not just King, but, you know, black Christians in general, they see that the Bible has this message that is inspired by love and that if the, you believe the words in the Bible, you have to be opposed to racism, you have to be opposed to prejudice, you have to be opposed to things like segregation and certainly slavery, that there's no way to justify God's commandments to love one another and still at the same time to treat certain Americans as second-class citizens. So their work is guided by this great moral principle by this overriding belief that all of us are made in the image of God. And King carries that to the nth degree. You know, he doubles down on it over and over again. And he says, you know, we're going to love our oppressors until they realize that our love is more powerful than their hate. And that is a, not just a, you know, beautiful religious principle, but it's also a good strategy because it gives him the moral and gives the protesters, gives the civil rights movement, the moral high ground and allows them to 
to portray themselves as the superiors in a way at a time when when white segregationists are still trying to claim that black people are fundamentally inferior. It was known or at least suspected in his circles that he was not being faithful to his wife. Were there any people brave enough to say, listen, you need to at least be more circumspect in how you approach this because there's so much at stake? Yeah, many people approached King, close friends, and said, you've got to cut it out. You know, it's going to get out. It's going to destroy your reputation. It's hurting Coretta. And he said to them, I just can't. I can't stop. It was almost a, a compulsion. And some of it may have been related to his st- the stress he was living under. Some of it may have been related to, you know, he, he suffered depression. He was hospitalized for anxiety many times. Some of it may have been a you know a function of the, just the lifestyle he was leading. And I think some of it was also just a function of that uh, he was deeply in love, I think, with one of these women that he uh, had this long time relationship with and couldn't imagine living without her. So it was complicated. It doesn't reflect well on him. You know, I like to think that as a moral leader, as a religious leader, he knew that adultery was wrong. He preached about it, but he literally just couldn't help himself, it seems. And um, when his friends told him, he said, I just can't give it up. I wonder if in some kind of like, deeper psychological way that the sinning, as it would be, was a way to keep him motivated to keep the cause going because he knew he always had to be like atoning for his sins by keeping going. And so it was kind of one of the engines that kept him going forward. That's an interesting idea. I hadn't thought about it that way, but it certainly could be that, look, we all know we have flaws. We all know we sin. And maybe that in some way pushes us to be better people, to try to atone for our sins. And if we can't stop one sin, we try to make up for it by doing good in another area. And, you know, at least, you know, we know with King that, that he never quit. He never, he never gave up on the cause. He never stopped sacrificing for the cause. And, and, and as Coretta said, he was a, always a guilt-stricken man, even when they were young and they were dating. And, and she found out that he was still seeing other girls you know, before they were married, that he couldn't live with the secret. He had to confess it to her and he had to, you know, express how how badly he felt about it. And, you know, you could argue that that's not enough, but it just at least, you know, reflects his state of mind. And it seemed that his depression went even earlier in his youth. He felt guilt and responsibility for things he shouldn't have and even actually jumped out of the window a couple of times. That's right. When he was uh, just an adolescent, he twice jumped out the window, second story window of his home when he was grief stricken. You know, he referred to them as suicide attempts, you know, may have been a little bit of a half hearted suicide attempt because it was only a second floor window and he he wasn't badly hurt. He was shaken up both times. But nevertheless, it does tell you something about his psychological state. And that was something that really dogged him all of his life. You know, he was hospitalized numerous times for exhaustion. Coretta called it depression. And, you know, we forget that when he won the Nobel Peace Prize, the news came in the hospital. He was in the hospital in Atlanta and uh, he invited reporters to come to interview him in his hospital bed and said he was just there because he badly needed a a mental health break. You almost wonder with him being assassinated at age 39, how much longer he could have gone the way he pushed himself. Yeah, it really seemed like he was losing confidence, losing steam. And, you know, we have these wiretaps of his phones because of the FBI's obsession with him. We can hear exactly what he was talking about in those days. And we hear him talking to some of his closest friends and associates saying, I feel like no one's listening to me anymore. The media is giving me no respect, especially after the violence erupted at one of his protests in Memphis. He said, you know, this is going to be the end of Martin Luther King, that 
no one's going to follow me anywhere because I've been committed to nonviolence. And, and now these protesters are marching beside me and violence is erupting. He really felt like he was running out of options. But and at the same time, I have to say, he did not give up because he was planning what what he perceived to be his biggest and most important movement. He was planning the poor people's campaign in Washington, which was really like something like the Occupy Washington movement. He was going to bring thousands of people to the to Capitol Hill and they were going to camp until the government agreed to a, a major restructuring of, of its economic policies. So though he may have felt great dismay and depression, he was never going to give up. At least, you know, he no, showed no signs of quitting. It was interesting to see how others who criticized him for his nonviolence, like Malcolm X or Stokely Carmichael, that as time grew on, they expanded their view of what they were fighting for to all of humanity, much like King did. They started in these very specific ideas of how black people in America are treated horribly, but then their consciousness became raised and they saw that, you know, this is a problem worldwide. Yeah. And that's what King intended all along, especially after he won the Nobel Peace Prize. He began to think about these issues more in a more global way. And Coretta really pushed him to do that too. But he saw this as not just about integration, not just about passing civil rights legislation. He saw this about living up to what the Bible preached, about loving one another, about breaking down the lines between people and between societies. And he began talking more about human rights than civil rights. And I, I think he had this this prophetic vision that that we could be a better world. And he saw nothing naive or unrealistic about this. He thought, this is what the Bible commands us to do. And that's all I'm doing. I'm just trying to live in the example of Jesus Christ. And and that's, to some of us now, that does seem naive, but it's also inspiring because who dares to not only think that way, but to actually act on it? Very few of us. Well, and it seems that with the achievements of the civil rights movement up through the 40s, 50s, and then into the early 60s, that, you know, what we'd call the low-hanging fruit of getting the right to vote, the getting right to be equal in public accommodations and government services, and then the Fair Housing Act, that then you start to get to these kind of root causes of class and race struggle. And I think in somewhere in the Bible, it does say the poor will always be with us. So even even the Bible recognizes that this is a, a big problem. Yeah. And, and one of the things I love about King is that in those last years, his advisors are saying, don't go to Chicago where you don't really know what you're doing. You don't have a support network built up. You don't have a grassroots organization. Don't focus on Vietnam. Don't focus on poverty. Keep doing what you're best at. Keep working on getting voters registered in the South. And we can shift the balance of power and we can get legislation passed that will start to attack some of these other issues like poverty, income inequality. And King won't do it. He says, I can't limit myself to that issue. I have to go and call out the racism in the North because it's the right thing to do. I have to call out the violence that the U.S. is perpetrating on Vietnam because it's the right thing to do. I'm not guided by what's going to be the most politically expedient move or what's going to make me the most popular. I'm guided by what Bible teaches us and what morality tells us is the right thing to do. And, and that made him so unusual. And then some people thought he was naive for that. His organization, the SCLC, the first word in that is Southern. And he did face a lot of headwinds when he left the South. Well, there's no question about that. We tend to think that he's only goes North in the late part of his career, but he's actually 
complaining about Northern racism throughout his entire career, just that it's not getting as much attention because the white Northern media doesn't like to call it out. You know, it's easy to criticize Birmingham and Selma. It's a lot harder to talk about the the white flight in Boston and Philadelphia. Uh, But King insists on calling it out and doing so routinely. And when he goes to Chicago and moves there in 1966, it doesn't go well. He faces as violent a reaction on the west side of Chicago and some of the suburbs, near suburbs, as he did anywhere in, in his lifetime. You know, he goes as far as to say that, you know, Chicago can teach Birmingham something about, about racism and about hate. So it's a painful experience for him. But I think, again, what's important to note is that he's not choosing the easier path. He's choosing the more difficult path because he believes that's what he's morally compelled to do. It's interesting to see the reaction of white people over the decades in that white people in the North viewed the white people of the South and their obvious racism against African-Americans so easily, but ignoring their own. And then you see the French criticizing America and welcoming artists from America there, but then see their later racism against their former colonial charges who moved to France and are shoved into the suburbs and and live uh, desperate lives there. And then you see in Sweden, and then you're seeing how immigrants are now being treated in those countries, and that this goes a long way up, that there's hardly a, a society that can say, you know, we're above this. No, and it's a sad notion to think how deeply baked in our racism is, and not just ours, but all over, all around the world. You know, it's a, it's a man-made construct, these notions of race, these identifications. We've invented these. We invented them to justify slavery in the first place, and they proved to be, you know, deeply ingrained and, and pernicious. And, you know, I think there's a feeling like King came closest, uh, or at least, you know, in the mid-60s, we feel like King is getting us close to this point that we're ready to move on. We're ready to rethink our prejudices, that society is is moving forward. We're adapting. And, you know, you see it right after the March on Washington. A lot of people, white and black writers and artists and and just regular citizens are saying, We've reached a turning point. We don't have to stick to these old views anymore. And yet they persist, sadly, and in part because there's an institutionalized effort to maintain the status quo and to keep the people in power in power. It is notable, though, to see that as he goes to Chicago to fight against the the segregation and racism up there, that he comes back for the Meredith March Against Fear. And, you know, he was used to going into Montgomery and Birmingham, Bull Connor in Birmingham, and then even the level of violence and vitriol that he faced in Mississippi 10 years after all this had started surprised even him. It's interesting that King had mostly avoided Mississippi during his peak years of activism. You know, he focused on Alabama much more, a little bit in Georgia, Florida. But when he finally goes to Mississippi in 1966, really almost forced to go there by the attack on James Meredith, you know, he encounters a level of hate that even he finds shocking. At the same time, he is you know, exposed there to Stokely Carmichael and his push for black power. It's, it's fascinating to see that dynamic because Stokely Carmichael is trying to use King to sort of position himself as the more radical alternative and trying to get King to say black power and King won't say it. He thinks it sounds you know, like it reeks of violence. But the push and pull there is fascinating. And one of the things I really admire about King is that he's always learning, listening to the younger, more left-wing activists. And even with Stokely Carmichael, I think that they had a real strong mutual respect. And it was ironic that Stokely Carmichael, the head of SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, did not disavow violence. 
No, in fact, you know, same thing for Malcolm X. They found that it was useful to position themselves as the alternative to Martin Luther King. You know, that guy may be promising nonviolence, but we're not. So you better watch out. It made them more dangerous. It made them more popular with the younger, more radical element. And it helped them attract a lot of media attention. And when Stokely said to Martin Luther King, you know, I'm using you. King just laughed and said, yeah, I've been used before. Don't worry about it. He, he knew exactly <laughs> the dynamic involved there. But it was very interesting to see these people that didn't appreciate or even held King in contempt for his nonviolent stances. When they actually met him in person, almost to a one, they came away very impressed with him, at least on a personal level. No question about that, because you had to admire his philosophy, his his integrity. And just personally, he was just this this lovely fake people person um, who, who listened, who, who cared about others, who was humble. You know, um, one of my favorite moments is when my two biographical subjects met Muhammad Ali and Martin Luther King. And you can just see how much there's a video, you know, there's TV footage of it. You can just see how much they're enjoying each other. They're making each other laugh. And um, there's just this enormous warmth between them. And you wouldn't expect it because, you know, Ali was, was mocking King at times, calling him, a, you know, a fool for believing in integration. But it didn't matter. King was still, you know, open-minded and, and willing to, to learn and listen to Muhammad Ali and vice versa. This is a man who lived 39 years and this topic, and he did so much in his time. Did you ever have a feeling that this maybe should be a multi-volume biography instead of a single volume? Oh, I thought about it. You know, I found so much material, new material, really new archive material on the Montgomery bus boycott, for example, that I easily could have written a whole book just on the Montgomery bus boycott. And at one point I actually said something to my editor, you know, how would you feel about making this a three volume work? And he said, I would feel very scared of making it a three volume work because a big part of of why I wrote this is that I I wanted a, a much larger audience to rethink their view of King and multi-volume work probably would have scared most of them away. And I, I think it's, he, my editor was right that it's, it, it's, it's important to tell the story in a compelling way that makes his life not just informative and eye-opening, but also entertaining. And I, I really wanted to, to do that with this book. So you mentioned these new materials that you've found in your research. What about the uh, most recent tranche of FBI recordings? What did you find there? Well, over the last few years, the FBI has been releasing more material from its archives and declassifying more of it. So we've been able to see the transcripts of the tapes that that, uh, the FBI made from King's hotel rooms, from his telephone, his home and office phones, um, as well as the home and office phones of some of his closest advisors. And we we get more detail of King's love life, for sure. Uh, We hear him talking to the women um, in his life. But What's most important to me is that we see the degree to which the FBI was obsessed with King and the degree to which they were out to destroy him. That's really what's what's most revelatory. And and we see, too, that um, it wasn't just J. Edgar Hoover. There were many high-ranking officials within the FBI who were involved, and there were members of the media who knew about it and didn't report on it, and that the president, LBJ in particular, was uh, complicit and even encouraging this activity, encouraging the FBI to leak the material on King to reporters. So, you know, it paints a a more devastating portrait of our government's actions and, and, you know, a somewhat more troubling portrait of King's personal life too. But to me, that's not the more important issue. Seems like it's similar to the reaction of, of white Southerners in that whenever you put a lie to someone's belief about themselves, 
that violence is often a response and that in white Southerners you show the way you treat African-American people is anti-Christian and they view themselves as good Christian people. You show America that it's falling down its promise to its African-American citizens and people who believe themselves to be patriots are then astounded that America couldn't be the, the best at all things at all times and that there is such a huge response and over overwhelming response to these like attacks on their conceptions of self. Right. And one of the things you see over and over again in the civil rights movement is this backlash. Every time King achieves something, every time the civil rights movement makes progress, there's this white backlash to say that, you know, we're not going to go any further than this. You know, when King gives his, his speech at the March on Washington, two days later, I think maybe three days later, the FBI authorizes more wiretaps. And then, you know, a week or so later, the uh, church in Birmingham is bombed. Uh, so by by white racists who are clearly angry that that the civil rights movement seems to be making progress, that that the fight for black dignity and black justice is gaining ground. So we constantly see this push and pull. And it's it's happens throughout American history. You know, um, anytime you see progress, you see black people being elected to office during the reconstruction period. Well, that's followed by a a crackdown by uh, the Klan and by Jim Crow era beginning to to take hold. So unfortunately, it's um it's a struggle we're still facing today. Now beyond Hoover, I mean, there's a responsibility in the government with the President of the United States and the Attorney General, and it's famous there was a a contentious relationship between Martin Luther King Jr. and John F. Kennedy and Bobby Kennedy. And in this book, Bobby Kennedy does not come across particularly well in the way he dealt and thought of King. No, King was deeply frustrated with with the Kennedys in general. He was frustrated with JFK for not moving more quickly to fulfill the promises he made to the black community, especially after the black community helped him win the election. Uh, He felt like the Kennedys were political and that they were hedging their bets, that they were trying to make sure they didn't lose too many votes in the South. And King was deeply frustrated by that. Bobby Kennedy liked to portray himself as a great ally of the civil rights movement, but at the same time, he authorized the first wiretaps on King and his uh, and his associates and did so because J. Edgar Hoover convinced Kennedy that there was this communist threat. And yet, even when it became clear that King was not remotely interested in communism and was certainly you know not out to spread communism, even then, the wiretaps were allowed to continue. They were reauthorized. And Kennedy was afraid to stand up to J. Edgar Hoover and and to demand an accountability for that. So these men were acting like politicians and not uh, moral leaders. And King was always kind of surprised by that. Maybe that's naive because they were politicians. But King was always somewhat surprised that they weren't just inclined to do the right thing morally and ethically. It is amazing and dispiriting to see that so much for what King fought for and achievements were made in civil rights it seems to be that we're slipping backwards right now. Yeah, King warned us, you know, in his last years that the, his his vision of the, the the dream was turning into a nightmare, that America was resegregating its schools, that northern communities were were growing more segregated as white flight took hold, that um, you know economic inequality was only growing, poverty was spreading, that we were becoming a more militaristic society. You know, he warned us about all these things, and he you know, saw a lot of this coming. And that's partly why I think we, you know, would benefit from from reading his words again and reading his books and listening to his sermons that he saw a lot of where we were headed and tried to warn us and um, and we failed to listen. I'll have to admit to a personal failing about 20 years ago, 
I myself said, you know, I'm tired of hearing about the civil rights era. I'm tired of hearing about the Holocaust. Mm. And when those things stopped being talked about, we see anti-Semitism coming mainstream again. And we see the rollback of the Voting Rights Act and racism becoming like a prominent feature in American politics again. Yeah, that's right. You know, when King said, um, let justice roll down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream, I think he was saying that it doesn't happen by itself. We have to make it happen. We have to make sure that people don't build new dams. And the reminder here, I guess, is that, you know, you can't take it for granted. It's not going to happen by by nature. We have to really work for justice. Well, Jonathan, with a, a book that's over 500 pages long in the main thrust of it, We've only scratched the surface. Would you uh, come back next time for a further conversation about Dr. King and your book? I would love to. Thank you. Jonathan Igg is the author of King, Alive, which is published by Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. Please join us next time as we conclude our conversation about this in-depth biography of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. I'm Stephen Usry, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is produced in the studios of FM 89.3 WYPL Memphis, a service of the Memphis Public Library, a division of the City of Memphis. Book Talk is copyrighted by the Memphis Public Library, all rights reserved.